We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. One of the reasons, or uh, one of the things I just asked was about unity. When we talked about how incredible these business meetings are, um, I've been here 17 years, and I can honestly say this. I have never been in a business meeting at this church where I was worried, concerned, stressed out. That's 17 years. I don't know if I don't know a pastor that can I don't know another pastor that can say that. I've never been in a deacons meeting at this church, not once, where it wasn't handled in an incredible spirit of unity and humility and kindness. I have seen disagreements, but I have never seen anyone inside that meeting not conduct themselves in the manner of, that Jesus Christ would be honored. I've never been in one that I wouldn't have been embarrassed for Jesus to be in there with us. I, I can't tell you how proud I am of that. That is a sign of unity, and I'm thankful for that because unity in a church can be taken for granted. You can absolutely take unity for granted. It's sort of like your health. When you feel great, you take your health for granted. Young people, they take their health for granted all the time. And then all of a sudden as things start to happen, you start to realize that when you do feel good, that that is a blessing from God. Well, when you're in a church that is united, sometimes it's easy to take that for granted. But some of you know exactly what it is to be in a place that is not united. And that is not of God. And one of the things we're going to experience tonight as we talk through church history is what happens when the church divides? What happens when the church is not unified? Do you have a listening sheet? Everybody, anybody need a listening sheet tonight? Church history, it says the 11th and 12th centuries at the top. Anybody um, do this? I'm not going to ask. Last week I asked if any of you had learned anything about church history over the past uh, several months, and I won't say any names, but there was one of you that looked right at me and shook their head and said, nope. And so I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask that tonight, but I certainly do hope that as we've walked through this. And so I want to just start talking about this because we're talking about something, um, that is over a, almost a thousand years ago. But before we jump into that conversation, if you've ever been a part, if you've ever been in a church that was divided, I, I want to know, is there ever, ever a reason for a church to divide? Is there ever a reason for a church to split? Yes, absolutely there is. But what we want to talk about tonight is when we are talking about church unity, you have got to be united over the right things. And most of the church divisions that many of you may have heard about or experienced or been a part of, maybe not all of them, but many, many, many of them were not over key doctrines. They weren't over soteriology. They weren't over Jesus Christ. They weren't over salvation. They weren't over significant spiritually theological things. They were over oftentimes side issues. And when a church gets focused on things that are what I call peripheral things, then all of a sudden what happens is we've turned our eyes from Jesus, we've turned our eyes on to other things, and now we begin to fuss and fight over things that divide the church. Now, is that ever permissible? Absolutely not. 
because not only does it affect the people inside the church, and I don't, this isn't testimony time, but in a group this large, and if the people that are listening, there are a lot of people in here that at some point in their life have been hurt at a church. Um, in fact, I don't know that church hurt isn't one of the, some of the worst hurt that people can experience. And the reason is, is because, and this may be a, a strong metaphor, but if you truly love your church, then it can almost feel like that there is a divorce or a separation happening in your life because you want to be dedicated. You want to stay in the fight. You want to be a part. You don't want to be a part of the problem. You want to be a part of the solution. But in the midst of all of that, you begin to recognize that the, the reason that I should be here, the reason that I should be going, the reason that I should be worshiping, uh, that's gotten sidetracked. If that's ever been an issue in the church, we need to know that it's not a new issue. In fact, the very first thing on your sheet talks about exactly that. In the year 1054, there was something called the Great Schism, um, a great divide between the church. And this certainly, if you go back and study it, it, it would be traced back to some doctrinal issues, specifically about views on the Trinity. But the real truth behind that split was the disagreement because of a power struggle about whether the Pope was the supreme authority over the worldwide church. And so the Eastern Church and the Western Church, they split, and the reason was because of that was actually because of a power struggle. Um, and so when that happens, not only does it affect people inside the church, but it affects people outside the church as well. Now, Obviously, I think one of the things that is, is difficult is that sometimes one of the assaults that comes on the church, I don't know, is a fair indictment or a fair critique. And what I'm talking about is sometimes people will say, well, then why are there all these different congregations? Why are there all these different churches? In the New Testament, there was one church in Thessalonica. There was one church in Corinth. Why do we need all these different churches? Well, the true issue is you're talking about in the first century, there was one because it was the first one. They really were the first Baptist church and they were the only Baptist church because the church had to grow for churches begin to multiply. So there being multiple churches is not truly the issue. The issue becomes though, and many of you can see this, in fact, I think probably in our part of the country, we probably can see it better than maybe other parts of the country. And the reason I can say that is if some of them haven't closed their doors since the last time I checked my statistics, there's 29 just Southern Baptist churches in Pike County, Mississippi. Now, how did most of that happen? This is, to me, this is fascinating. Some of your, this might not be interesting to you at all. To me, this is fascinating. How were most churches founded? Churches were founded as part of communities very often. And certainly in rural places, they would found a church that was among a group of farmers and families that was in a community, often when roads were not necessarily passable. You had to have a community church where people could get there and get to that specific place or that specific location. And so 
as new communities arose, sometimes you would have a new church plant up, but also what you would see is out of 29 churches, even in our county, if you were to trace them back, what you would also find is that a lot of those churches were birthed out of other churches. Now, some of those are what I would call organic births or healthy births, meaning that a church plants another church. That is healthy. That is what the New Testament church is called to do. But often it's not because they planted a church, it's because a church split. So you have First Baptist Church, Second Baptist Church, Third Baptist Church, and whatever else. And me and a group of people decide to pack up our stuff and move down, down the road. And so you see these places that begin to crop up because of that often are founded in division. Now you say, what would that matter 50 years later, 100 years later, it's amazing to me how much, it, how much difference it makes. If you start something, if you plant a pine tree, 30 years later, do you know what it's going to be? This isn't a trick question. There's going to be a pine tree. I've never known anybody to plant a pine tree and it become an oak tree. Never seen that happen. When something is founded that way, often what comes out of it, even sometimes generationally afterward, is the product of that. So when we talk about the schism that took place all the way back in 1054 and the church splits over a power struggle, you can imagine that many people inside the church get disenfranchised with the church, but people outside the church get disenfranchised with the church as well. Why? Why would anybody want to come and be a part of something when you and I can't even get along? That doesn't make any sense. Now, at a church our size, I'll tell you, there's a lot of people here, a lot of different personalities. Some people are extremely normal like me, and some of them are completely weird like some of you, you know? But the truth is, it takes all types, right? It takes all types. And so one of the things I think that's really important is unity is found in diversity. That we don't want everybody to be exactly alike, but we do want to understand the importance of how understanding church history can affect the way that we approach it today. The unity of the visible church was broken then, and the unity of the visible church is broken in our time. Now, let me, before we move any further, I think this is an important thing to note. I get this question a lot. Why don't we all just come together? Why, you know, if we're all claiming Christ, why don't we get together with the Catholics and get together with the Charismatics and get together with the Methodists and get together with the Presbyterians and get together with the Pentecostals and we ought to all just come together? Understand something. That Doctrine is absolutely important. And having different congregations is not a bad thing. That is biblical. What we have to learn, though, is that there are things that I can disagree with someone about, even fundamentally disagree with someone about, but I have to be able to ask the question, is this a salvation issue? Is this a salvation issue? There are certain things that I would go so far as to say it is absolutely worth splitting over because there is a certain list of New Testament principles that if you do not believe them, I will go so far as to say you no longer are a church. There are certain things that 
I would say absolutely not. I can have no partner with Belial. We can have no partnership with the devil. We cannot allow ourselves, when it comes to our soteriology, our study of what we believe salvation to be, there is a litmus test of certain doctrines that we cannot compromise on. There are others that I would absolutely me and other people would disagree on but I would not our disagreement would not cause me to not believe that they were a brother in Christ are you, you following me on that so there are things that you and I could disagree on theologically and you believe I'm saved and I believe you're saved and we believe that we're brothers in Christ but we may not agree on every element of of theology that happens in congregations, but what happens is inside local congregations, when we become more about the fight and more about the debate than we do about uniting over Christ, then what the world sees is that the church it can't even find, find themselves able to get along. It's one of the reasons that I try to be very careful I like a good debate. I mean, I, I do. I, I like a little back and forth. And that's okay if it's profitable. But if the only reason for it is so that I can be right and prove you wrong, there is nothing edifying about that. If I'm arguing for the sake of argument or arguing for, for that sake, then that obviously is not what's going on. And so we learn from history. And then we also need to point out that even in times like that, you see the next section there is this bright spot in the 11th century. A man by the name of Anselm of Canterbury who promoted his famous ontological argument for the existence of God and explored the purposes behind the atonement of Christ. Um, Anytime you have dark ages in the church, you also have theologians that rise up. Because when the church experiences dark times, then the pressure of that causes some men to rise up. When they rise up, strength is brought back to the church. And so we begin to see not only in his theology and his apologetics, we see that, but also many within the church were beginning to recognize the corruption when there is an inseparable link between church and state. Now, here's a, here's a place that, that if you're kind of dozing on me because you ate too much red beans and rice and cornbread, that I want you to hear me well before you misquote me when you leave. When we hear the word separation of church and state, people get so upset that when we hear that because we hear it misused all the time. We always hear that misused. There's got to be a separation from church and state. And often they quote Jefferson because it came out of a letter that Jefferson wrote. Jefferson was talking about protecting the church from the state, not the state from the church. There's a big difference in what Jefferson was getting at. But even as Christians, we need to understand there should be a separation of church and state. Now, follow me on this. The church and the state are two different entities. The church does not rule the state, and the state does not rule the church. Every time throughout church history, when the two have become confused, that's when things have gone off the rails. It's not that the people in the church shouldn't be involved in things in government. It's that when the two things are on the same track, not parallel, but they're on the same track, then you end up with power and corruption because then people inside the church or inside the government, or using one of the two, and Jesus said, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. People will lose their mind if you tell them Jesus is not a Republican. 
But just so you don't throw stuff, he's not a Democrat either. Right? And so understanding what that looks like in our lives is really, really important. In fact, these, that's where I believe the seedbed was, was already being laid for the Reformation that we'll talk about in several weeks. Church leadership, these popes, involved themselves more and more in worldly affairs, and the constant need to raise funds drove them to use any means. This became the primary driving factor, and there's little to no concern over the spiritual well-being of the church or its true calling. When the church becomes more about money than it is about anything else, then all of a sudden what the popes became was fundraisers. So the problem with that is, and one of the difficulties became, and one of the reasons I stress all the time, read your Bible, study your Bible, read your Bible, study your Bible, is this. If you are ignorant and you can't read, the people that were listening to these popes were dependent on them. And the popes themselves were ignorant of the Bible, uneducated in the Bible. And so because of that, they became power hungry and became, and got, became giving get-rich-quick schemes to the church, promising them things spiritually if they gave financially, and the corruption lined their pockets and their political careers. Nothing like that ever happens today, does it? Some of you watch this mess. You do. The other morning, I get up, I get up at 5.30 and um, occasionally, and I, I don't know why he comes on the History Channel. I mean, he's not that old, but David Jeremiah comes on the History, on the, uh, not a History Channel, uh, yeah, History Channel at like 5.30 in the morning. So sometimes I'll catch the end of his. So the other morning, I'm up, it's early. And I change it over on mine to 360, which is Fox News. Well, if you go to Fox News, you go up and down from 360, there's all these religious channels. So I just wanted to see out of the religious channels that were on my television, how many of the channels did I believe were people that were proper teachers of the gospel? Do you know out of the eight channels that were around there, there was not one that I would recommend you? Not one. Why? Because it's completely filled with prosperity hacks. People that I think there's a hot place in hell reserved for. Stealing money from those people who either don't know any better or are so hopeless and helpless that they're grasping at straws. And little old ladies that are sending their Social Security money to buy miracle water and handkerchiefs. And I hope those line their coffins and make it a little softer for them when they throw the dirt over the top of them and enjoy the place where the fire does not go out. Because that is the exact thing that was happening in 1054 when you had a group of popes who came up with shyster methods to try to take, them, take people's money away and promise them things that God never promised out of the Bible. If you don't learn from history, you repeat history every single time. That's why it's really important to note some of these things. Um, 12th century, when moving up 100 years, gave rise to the campaigns known as the Crusades. Certainly everyone in here has probably heard of the Crusades before. These were commissioned by none other than the Pope. They were backed by Western kingdoms to combat the threat of Islam and to retake Jerusalem and to retake the Holy Land. Probably, if, if not the darkest, one of the darkest marks on the church over its entire 2,000-year history. Instead of relying on spiritual weapons, those are listed, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. When you hear about 
all of the spiritual weapons that we are equipped with, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, all of the things that we are given, feet that, that are fitted with the shoes and readiness of the gospel, these are all elements that are given to us to fight the war that God told us to fight. But the church, because it was interested in political power, military power, and financial power, they began to replace the language of love and humility with the language of violence, and all of a sudden the church becomes involved in something it was never meant to become involved in. So how do you defeat when, when it, and, and we ought to learn from this too. You want some political lessons that come out of church history? Do you hear these people on the news all the time talking, talking about peace in the Middle East? If a politician promises you he's going to bring peace to the Middle East, find somebody else to vote for. He is not going to bring peace to the Middle East. Not a Republican, not a Democrat, not an Independent, unless Jesus Christ tells you that He is, because He's the only one, it's not going to be there. They have been fighting over there since we're talking thousands of years and you know what they're going to keep fighting over there and the fighting is not going to get better the fighting is going to get worse until it gets a whole lot better and there is peace that's coming to the middle east i can promise you that but it will not be because we have a republican congress it won't be because you elect a different president peace is going to come to the middle east when jesus christ returns when he returns the peace there but when the church gets so caught up and they fail to understand that the weapons we have are spiritual weapons so often when we hear about islam now when when somebody asked me about that like we just celebrated the the anniversary of 9-11 and so that's an evil that is almost uncomprehendable understanding what took place and the attack on american soul how should we view that? Well, understand this. It is not unchristian to want vengeance to come on the evildoer. In fact, that is biblical. That is prayed for in the Psalms. And it is the government's responsibility, Romans 13, to punish the evildoer. It is the government's responsibility to kill evil people so that they do not kill good people. That is the responsibility of the government. It's one of the reasons I am not a pacifist. When we understand it is not the church's role, but it is the church's role to pray for and support whenever it is that we are supporting our government. But when we understand as the church, our role would be, say, if you were to ask, well, what is the church's role in making sure that an event like 9-11 doesn't happen again? What is the church's role? We'll go out and kill every Muslim, right? That's, that's, that was the thinking in the Crusades. If we wipe them off the face of the earth, go ahead and send them to hell early, we can wipe them off the face of the earth and we can reclaim what's rightfully ours. But the message of the gospel is that if you wanted to change the hearts of people, the only way that that's going to happen is the same way it happened in your life if you're saved. And that is that they be convicted of their sin and turn to Christ. I'm telling you, I believe the gospel. I do. And I believe a jihadist can be saved by Jesus. I, I do. I believe the most militant Muslim can be saved by the gospel. 
I believe that rapists, I believe murderers can turn to Jesus and they can be saved. That does not mean that worldly justice or vengeance should not come upon them. But what it does mean is that the church has a greater weapon than even tanks, aircraft carriers, rifles. The church has the weapon of the gospel. And if the church had done for centuries what the church should have been doing, then the church would advance the cause of the gospel and we would be changing people from the inside out instead of trying to reform them from the outside in. Understand that? We haven't understood this at the church since Jesus was incarnate. How do I know that? What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He looked at them and says, you're whitewashed tombs. You look real pretty on the outside, but you're rotten to the core. And yet, Pharisaical religion for 2,000 years has said, what should we do? We should try to clean people up on the outside. You can clean them up all you want to, and they'll go to hell because they're rotten in their heart. And so the message of the gospel has to be, we've got to, carry, we've got to be changing people from the inside out by the power of the gospel and using the right weapons. So one lesson to be learned from this time period is that when the agenda of the world becomes the agenda of the church, the church loses its calling. And also we're to never forget that Christ never forsakes his church. If you wanted evidence, if you wanted evidence of the fact that hell will not prevail, that hell is not going to prevail over the church, study church history. Every reason in the world why the church shouldn't have made it out. In fact, almost every century you study, you go, there's no way they made it out of that. But somehow a gospel light continued to burn. People somehow continued to get saved. Churches still grew. Missionaries still went out. Bibles still survived. The gospel still got preached. And to me, if I had to pick one thing of studying 2,000 years of church history that's been encouraging to me is that you can't put out this little light of mine. I learned that when I was real little. I ain't going to let Satan, we had to do the motions. Did y'all do that? It out. I'm going to let it shine. And one of the things I know is that it's been shining for over 2,000 years and that we are just a part of that, but we have to be a faithful part of that. Let it be said that when someone, if Jesus tarries a thousand years from now and they're talking about that 21st century, I hope that somebody points to the church and maybe they'd say there was this little Baptist church in Summit, Mississippi and they were faithful and they loved their God and they worshiped their Savior and they witnessed and they evangelized. And who would have thought that God used that little map dot town in Southwest Mississippi to do what he did? Do I think God can do that? absolutely pray with me lord jesus i thank you that you're the sovereign over history that you're our god that you're our savior that you have given us the weapons of war with which to fight lord we're thankful that you equip us and that the man of god is thoroughly equipped to do good works by the power of the gospel so lord we're thankful to be given the privilege to live during this time period and may we live well may we live to your honor may we live to your glory Lord Jesus, we are thankful so much for the privilege that you have given us. And Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that, Lord, there were people in my life that loved me enough to share the gospel with me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.